Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the film streaming at BYU's International Cinema. This is our sixth podcast of fall semester 2020. I'm Mark Yamada, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm happy to welcome Julie Allen, professor of comparative literature at BYU and expert in Danish and Scandinavian literature and culture. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Mark. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, this is your first time on the podcast, isn't it? It is. I was yeah. supposed to do it last year, but after Porter known it, but that didn't work out. Yeah. but So we're happy that we got you uh, in some form or another, especially for this film, which I think in some ways you are an expert and, and in a great position to talk about. Well, thanks. I'm excited to talk about it. This week, we are featuring films about ordinary people who are caught up in criminal activity. The films that are playing at IC include Lucky Grandma from 2019, about a grandmother in Chinatown who goes toe-to-toe with the Chinese mafia, The Vanishing, which is a Hitchcockian thriller from 1988, and then Winter's Bone, which is a noir starring Jennifer Lawrence and directed by Deborah Granick from 2010. But today, the subject of the podcast is the 2020 Norwegian film, The Painter and the Thief by Benjamin Rhee. The film follows Czech artist Barbara Kiskova and her unconventional friendship with Carl Bertel Nordland, a man who steals one of her paintings. It's a strange and beautiful relationship that begins when Barbara attends Carl's criminal arraignment and curious as to why he would steal one of her paintings, she strikes up a conversation that eventually leads to a beautiful moment when she paints him and he has a very cathartic experience. Now, I mean, it it seems to be a story about Carl's redemption through Barbara, but I think the film does a good job of avoiding cliché and really making it about their relationship. There's an interesting moment partway through the film where the perspective is reversed and Carl begins to see Barbara uh, and some of her own issues that she struggles with, uh, some of the trauma that she has from an abusive relationship. But in some ways it deals with Carl's own struggle with drugs and with his criminal activity. And this is an issue that in some ways is interesting. It doesn't really come to the forefront of the film so much, but it's a, it's an issue in the background. And it's one that I think deserves some, some deeper discussion here. And so Julie, you, you know a lot about not necessarily firsthand drug rehabilitation <laughs> in, in Norway, but you, um, you know something about the penal system and, and rehab in Oslo. What can you tell us about you know, what's going on uh, with this in the film and its significance, maybe, to the, to the larger documentary. Sure. So when seeing the film, I was first struck by the the theft, of course, which is such a common theme that so many major artworks have been stolen over the past century from you know, the theft of the Mona Lisa in 1910 or 11, um, and the theft of the Scream, the famous monk painting in 1994. And then again, another version of that was stolen in 2004, but this painter isn't a famous painter and she's not, it's not about the theft and the recovery and, and what you'd kind of expect. And instead it's much more for me, a story about the thief and had the fact that he is also in the title of the film made me wonder about that. How is a thief positioned in our culture? And I've read some books about art thieves and many of them get a thrill from it. Some of them are art lovers themselves. And so in this film, the fact that he doesn't seem to care that he, he thought it was beautiful. It wasn't because it was, famous or particularly valuable as far as we know, but that he stole it to feed his drug habit. And then he ends up going to jail. I'm not sure if it's entirely for the painting or for the the car accidents uh, that he causes later, 
But that seemed to me to be a big part of the story, the way that he is rehabilitated, truly rehabilitated from the drug addict so out of his mind with um, substance um, abuse and lack of sleep when he steals the painting that he has no idea what he even did with it to this man at the end who's really comforting the artist as she's struggling with her own difficulties with finances and inspiration and just her own life, her own private life. Yeah, it seems to kind of put them in not so much on an even level, but they, you know, there's this kind of relationship between the two and it, it changes the focus from him, like you said, to, to her, but he really, his kind of struggles, like you mentioned, are kind of central here. But like, like you said, it's interesting that he steals the painting, but not so much for money per se, but, and, and she's not really famous, but really because it, the, the painting kind of strikes him. And I, I didn't realize, I mean, I guess I didn't realize there was a kind of this culture of, of stealing art. Well, <laughs> uh, and it happens a lot, right? People steal art when they can't afford it. And the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston still has markings where the paintings were stolen. You know, I think it's more like 25 years ago and the, everything in the museum is required to remain the way it is. And so they can't move things around. So they just have holes where right. these missing pieces are. And I noticed that in the exhibit in the film, when she finally does put a large scale exhibit on after recovering the one painting, they have a, a print of the other painting, the one that Carl Bacho stole. Right. Um, and just say, so it just says still missing. Right, right. So yeah, yeah I think that's part of it. But but the, the center of the film, I mean, chronologically, is his time in Halden Fengsel, in yeah. the, the prison outside of Oslo, where he goes after all this self-destructive behavior. And so I thought that was a really interesting choice that it doesn't end with him in prison, doesn't start with him in prison, but between his first offense against her and the sort of culmination of their friendship is this stay in prison, which I think raises a lot of questions about what happens to him there and how that affects his development as a person, how that shapes their relationship. They I mean, they don't communicate when he's in prison. She is um, going through a lot of other things at that time and she, he keeps calling her and she doesn't answer. But you do see a lot of the way the prison helps him find a sort of inner peace, helps him grow up, helps him uh, detox. And it's really interesting. If you look at it, you might not even notice he's in prison. If you're not paying attention, he looks like he's in an apartment. Right. You know, he has his own bed. He has his own fridge. He um, is able to work out. He has a job. He's in the photo lab. I mean, he doesn't. he doesn't seem to be imprisoned if you're judging it by the standards of the American uh, penal system, which is very much a retributive system that we punish people for what they did. And, and the point of prison is to make them suffer, to make them pay for their crimes. And Norway had a system like that until the early 1990s, when they decided to change their system, that going from this punitive system, they decided to try a, a truly rehabilitative system where instead of punishing people, you try to change them, to make them better, to, to help them come back into society. And the jewel in the crown of that system is hauled in prison, where mm -hmm. Carl Bertil spends time. It costs um, about $140 million to build. It's a very expensive prison. Right. And it costs about $150,000 per year to keep a prisoner in Halden because it isn't a box, a cement box with a bunch of guys crammed into cement cells. Yeah. Every prisoner has their own little apartment with their own bed and their own fridge and their own bathroom, a TV, a desk, forest views. And it's very much more like a kind of nice upscale college dorm. 
Yeah, we get a sense of that when we see, like you said, in the, in the film, we get a, a sense of that uh, kind of living conditions. And even the way, I mean, like you said, there's more, there's a different philosophy, you know, with the penal uh, system here, you know, the United States, and there is obviously there. And, you you know, we hear things about kind of the European model and, and, and Scandinavian model of penal, uh, you know, kind of reformation. You know, it does seem kind of interesting and it kind of leads to questions about kind of redictivism and and how much does this this system, how successful is it in actually reforming, you know, criminals and, and, and keeping them from coming back, right? Sure. And that's obviously the goal of any penal system is to right. prevent more crime. And the U.S. has about a 50% recidivism rate after three years. So okay. almost anyone who's been incarcerated for a major crime within about half of them within three years will be arrested again. Yeah. And Norway had a similar rate. The UK has a similar rate. But after introducing this new system, this rehabilitative system that designs is designed so that when someone comes out of prison, they have a career, they have skills and certifications, they have practiced living on their own, they have practiced living with other people, interacting with, with women. There's a lot of female guards at these prisons because they say there are a lot of women in society. We can't expect them to, men, men violent offenders to treat women in society fairly if they can't treat women guards fairly. Yeah. And so um, all these things, so when they come out, they're, they're ready. They're, they're much more ready to be part of society than they were. And it has dropped their recidivism rate to 25% over five years. Wow. And so it's a, it's a dramatic increase. And so Norway has much, much lower rates of violent crime, much shorter sentences. And so even though the prisoner cost per year is higher than some people might feel is justified, if they don't come back, then you've saved a lot of money right there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes to the, the you know, upfront cost, like you said, of building the prison. Yeah, we had um, Mikalin Steele, who's in the law school at BYU here, talk about 16 Bars, which is a film that we're showing right now at, at BYU's International Cinema, about kind of this music program for, for inmates to help them kind of give them voice and also give them a way to express some of the, you know, the angst and the anger that they have as a way of, of, of helping, of creating a system and a culture in order to avoid the recidivism rates. And so you see a little bit of that going on, but it's it's not to the extent that you see in Norway and the program that they have going on there. And I, in some ways, you see that rehabilitation in Carl's life a little bit. I mean, you know, the movie shortens, we don't get to see a lot of it. But it seems like, you know, he's able to begin to function more in society. The, the film jumps around a little bit, but you get that sense from that film. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree that the, the Carl Bata that Barbara meets in the courtroom is absent even from himself, right? And he has this anger and this need to punish himself. And so he goes on these fast motorcycle rides and fast car rides and puts himself in danger sort of deliberately, right, to feel something. And he breaks up with his girlfriend when she's trying to get him to go into rehab because he he needs that. He feels like he needs that stimulus of of the drugs and the violence and the suspense. And so his his relationship with Barbara at first, I think, is is more of a novelty for him. Like, who is yeah. this woman and why would she do this? But when she paints him and he sees the beauty that she sees in him and the the tranquility of that scene, you know, with him holding the wine glass and being at peace. For me, that was a really important moment in the film where you see him burst into tears, right? Just overwhelmed by the the peace of this, this moment. And so for me, then when he goes to Halden 
and this is of course tricky because this is not a fiction film. He really does go to prison, right. um, but it's so well crafted that when he goes to Halden and spends the middle of the film in this piece where tranquility is the point, right? The mm -hmm. whole prison is on a, a, in a sort of wilderness forest surrounded by a really high cement wall but without any other trappings of a prison, there's green spaces. They can go, the prisoners can go jogging. They can do yoga. They have all have a forest view to calm them down. The prison governor has said the whole point of this is to calm them so they yeah. don't feel the anger that leads to violence. We want them to be calm and peaceful. And you see that so clearly with Karl Bertil, how he calms down, right? And when he gets out with his big beard, he gets a job. He gets a new relationship. He is able to be calm. And we finally could reconnect with Barbara. He seems like a very different person. He's not this sort of edgy junkie, but yeah. he's you're a fairly you know respectable healthcare aide. Yeah, no. The moment that you talk about, like you said, is, is really this beautiful moment. And is it that he, through her work of art, like you said, is able to see himself in a different way or to see or or maybe the fact that someone sees him as a value as kind of sees his humanity that gives him this kind of cathartic moment that allows him to kind of in some ways maybe separate himself from this addiction that's kind of seized him a little bit yeah it's hard to know what what exactly it is again because it's not a fiction film it's right. what he actually experiences but the fact that she brings the painting to his hospital room and right. that the hospital room that that's the focus of his recovery is seeing this this vision of himself. So just it's probably it's probably some of both, right? Yeah, yeah. That um, that it's it's seeing himself as, kind of like how we when we try to see people through Christ's eyes sure. and see how beautiful they can be if they would just believe in themselves, if they would just treat themselves with the respect that they deserve. And I yeah. think that ties into Karl Bertel's history as a, a druggie, that his use of heroin doesn't seem to be motivated by need. I mean, Norway is a, a tremendously prosperous country. It's right. very expensive, but the state is also very generous. And so people don't necessarily turn to, to drug use because of financial desperation or the kind of desperation that you often see in American drugs, although I guess heroin is more of an upper-class drug anyway. But, um, but I think it has a, a lot to do with this lack of a vision for his own life, right? He says that when he was in high school, he had this group of friends and by the time he's in his early 20s, only two of them are left, that that they've all had this self-destructive behavior, maybe as a reaction to the protectiveness of the welfare state, where you don't face the same kinds of existential crises. Right. And so you have to make them somehow. Mm, yeah. No, and it's, you know, it's a film. I know that Benjamin Ree talked about this film at Sundance and mentioned that he started, he heard about the story and really got in early. I think it was like they had met four times Mm -hmm. and Carl and he got in early and started shooting and he wasn't sure if it was going to be like a 10 minute film you know or right and it really kind of took on and it's amazing how it developed in a way that it feels like almost fiction and yet there's there's a, a truth to it and a reality to it and yet it's, it's also kind of edited like fiction because you have this kind of these flashbacks and you have um, some interesting moments that happen and kind of the shifting of perspective um, right yeah, of, and, and I think the, the structure of the film is what Reed does so well. I mean, because he has to work with what he's got, and so he um, he makes it the focus really on Carl Bertil's rehabilitation until the second half, where it starts as he gets out of prison. It starts, I think, the focus shifts to Barbara, and we start seeing what she's going through—the therapy, the relationship counseling, sort of her affinity with 
people that cause her pain, people that are dangerous, and the way that is a threat to her, her poverty. And it's interesting to me how she then becomes, in some ways, more the person that you you want to help by the yeah. end that, that Carl Bertel wants to help. But the fact that they could recover one of her paintings and that she recovers it almost in a criminal way, right? That she goes through criminal connections and breaks into this basement to get back her own painting, stealing her own painting. That scene of her walking through the streets of Oslo with the painting on her shoulder, having just essentially broken it out of drug lord jail, is a really <laughs> amazing one. I think that shows kind of how they're not as different yeah. as they seemed at first. Yeah, yeah, and I think Benjamin mentioned that that as the film went on and he was shooting that they they really seemed to be very similar in that way. What did you make of the end of the film? There's kind of this interesting moment where they're they're kind of like posing together a little bit. I know the end was a little bit inconclusive for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted her to find the other painting. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted him to remember what he'd done with it and be able to track it down. And if it was a fiction film, I think that would have been a really nice way to to wrap right. this up, right? Um, and that that doesn't happen. And so it's open ended in that sense that the painting is still out there, yeah. that her relationship with Oystein is still unclear, that yeah. their lives will still go on. But I feel like that's how it avoids the cliche, right? It's not just big hearted artist forgives terrible criminal, right. but it's complicated people in different stages of their lives trying to find meaning in the things around them. And, and she finds meaning and beauty in painful things. You know, his hands with the stigmata, I think yeah. is a really interesting choice, right? That, that for her, it is both spiritual and I think existentially important, but also aesthetically really powerful yeah. that, um, that she also recognizes, I guess, her own existential vulnerability, not just her vulnerability in, in the sense of you know, financial need or the having her painting stolen. Yeah, when I see a film like this, I kind of want them to be frozen in this kind of moment where everything is fine and they're great friends. And then, you know, you hear, sometimes you see films like this and you hear like people have relapsed or they're, you know, different things like that. I Apparently, I think Carl is still doing well and... But it's interesting how, in some ways, these 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 individuals become characters in this kind of story that we have of them. Uh, but life goes on, right? It's kind of, right. Well, thank you, Julie. This is a really interesting discussion on uh, the film and some of the background into kind of the penal structure. And you know, this is kind of a theme that's developing a little bit in this semester of international cinema. We're looking at some films that deal with you know prison and prisoners and and these things. And so this is a really good one to look at for that. Well, I think it is a really important lens for our society. I mean, that's the point of a lot of these films is that we can look back on our own system and you see what a difference it makes in in the lives of these two people, that there's a way for him, not just to go to rehab, but to find vision for his life, to, to pay for his sins by losing his freedom in that time, but also to pay for them by recreating a new life. And I think that's far more, as much as people talk about the secularism of the Scandinavian countries, yeah. I think it's a far more Christian perspective on people that that they all have value and no one's life should be thrown away, right. locked up in a, in a hole in isolation. And so thinking about American penal structures in a contrast with Norwegian, these innovative ways of approaching the penal system, I think can be so beneficial for us as a society. Yeah, no, you're right. I think there's definitely, you see the kind of the value of, of each individual through this film. I agree. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you uh, for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at IC by specialists who will be joining us on our podcast. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU 
and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming.